The reading for today's sermon is from Joshua, beginning at chapter 16, verse 1. The allotment for the people of Joseph went out from the Jordan by Jericho, east of the waters of Jericho, into the wilderness, going up from Jericho into the hill country of Bethel. Then, going from Bethel to Luz, it passes along to Ashtaroth, the territory of the Archites. Then it goes down westward towards the territory of the Japlethites, as far as the country of Lower Beth-Horon and to Giza, and it ends at the sea. The people of Joseph... Manasseh and Ephraim received their inheritance. The territory of the people of Ephraim by their clans was as follows. The boundary of their inheritance on the east was Ataroth Adar, as far as Upper Beth Horon, and the boundary goes from there to the sea. On the north is Mitch Methath. Then on the east, the boundary turns round towards Tanath Shiloh and passes along beyond it to the east to Janoah. Then it goes down from Janoah to Ataroth and to Naarah and touches Jericho, ending at the Jordan. From Tapua, the boundary goes westward to the brook Canar and ends at the sea. Such is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Ephraim by their clans, together with the towns that were set apart for the people of Ephraim within the inheritance of the Manasites, all those towns with their villages. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Giza. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day but have been made to do forced labour. Then allotment was made to the people of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. To Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, were allotted Gilead and Bashan, because he was a man of war. And allotments were made to the rest of the people of Manasseh by their clans, Abiezer, Helek, Asriel, Shechem, Hefer, and Shemida. These were the male descendants of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, by their clans. Now, Zelophehad the son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the leaders and said, the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. The land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious Father, open your most sacred lips, we pray, that we may hear your voice and that filled with the Spirit who breathed these words, we may be conformed into the likeness of your Son. For we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. So I want to begin today, if I may, by speaking specifically and directly to the unmarried ladies among us. If you marry, your decision to marry will be easily the biggest decision you make in your life as a disciple of Jesus, that is, assuming you've already decided to follow him, and especially the person you marry, the person you choose to be your husband. That is easily the most significant decision you will ever make. 
not to deny, of course, that something is similar to truth and, truth and men, and we could get to other things in a moment. But just think for a second, ladies, about the impact that your choice of husband stands to make upon you. All the intimacy and closeness that you will share with one man. All the mundane matters, where you'll live, the daily routines, financial stability, your other relationships with other people and other families. Obviously, it will have an impact on your household, the kind of culture or aroma of your home. And above all, your spiritual health, your relationship with Jesus and that of your whole household hinges decisively on the identity of the man you choose to be your husband. It's not just that, well, you know, he'll be an example to you and his health will affect you in some way, like all the people you're around or their spiritual health affect you. If they're a good example, if they read their Bibles, if they pray, if they encourage you, well, that'll make an impact on you. That's true, obviously. But more fundamentally, if you're married, and this is a point that's kind of difficult to grasp, but I think it's really important to try and find a way of articulating it. Your marriage is the medium, it is the context within which you experience all of the blessings of your relationship with Jesus. Just think for a second about the, um, the structure of the promises that God makes to his people and the way in which the faithful of God respond. So God promises to be God to you and your children, to you and your household. It's not just like, well, I'll be God to you and I'll be God to them. It's, I'll be God to you collectively, Genesis 17. Uh, hence, at the end of Joshua, we'll get to that in chapter 24. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Not, as for me, I'm going to serve the Lord and I'm going to be trying to give the best example to all the rest of them. No, there's a corporate character. It's that household which is the entity which lives before God and in which you experience the blessing of knowing God. To pick an illustration, it's not like you're going on a journey in your truck, you know, whatever car you drive, and the husband you choose is the guy who you choose to drive in convoy with. Right? And it's not that you invite him into your truck, you get into his truck. That's the place that defines the direction of your life in so many different ways. So it's not something, shall we say, tacked on to your relationship with Jesus. It's not even a really, really important thing. It is the, the sphere within which your relationship with God is enjoyed. And actually, just as an aside, you actually see this very clearly and sometimes somewhat painfully in situations like in the early church where sometimes a woman would become a Christian and her husband did not. It's like 1 Corinthians 7. It wasn't unknown then. It's not unknown now. And even if you know, you're blessed to have a, uh, an unbelieving husband who is a great guy, and many are. Nonetheless, the, the inevitable tension that you feel, or the people in that situation frequently feel, is testimony to the determinative role that your marriage plays in your relationship with the living God. There's nothing that you can do that will have a more significant impact on your future once you've become a Christian. And these issues are in the background of today's passage in Joshua 16. You remember if you've been with us in previous weeks, we're in the third major section of the book of Joshua. Um, we're continuing with the account of the inheritances of the different tribes. You've got chapter 13, the Transjordan tribes on the east of the Jordan across the river. 14 and 15, you've got Judah, the tribe of Judah and uh, Caleb. 
And uh, then you've got chapter 16, you've got other tribes on the west of the Jordan here, beginning with Ephraim and Manasseh. And in chapter 16, verse 1 to 4, the allotment of the people of Joseph, well, Joseph is the father of Ephraim and Manasseh, and you realize, remember there's a slightly complex tribal history because that one son of Jacob gets split in two, two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. And then it describes the uh, initial uh, region of the inheritance going down from Bethel to Luz and so on. And this narrative of the inheritance of the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, is interrupted by what I mentioned before, is often called a land-grant narrative. It's one of these little conversations, there are five in total in this long section from chapter 13 to 21, uh, which punctuate like gooey chocolate chunks in a beautiful chocolate muffin, punctuate this long narrative of lists and so on, to give some specific information about particular issues that had to be dealt with. And here, we've had the conversation with Aksar and Othniel, and in chapter 14, the first one with Caleb and Joshua, here it is, verse, um, uh, chapter 17, uh, verses 3 and 4, it's Zelophehad's daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirzah, approaching Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun in verse 4, and the leaders, and they have a question. And if, let me just read the verse 4. They approached Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, it's a very, very significant moment, just look what they said closely, the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. And what are you supposed to do at this point? You're supposed to think, huh? What? Where, where did the Lord command that? In other words, there is a backstory which the first hearers of this text, the first readers of it, would have been very familiar with. And if you've not read the book of Numbers recently, you won't be very familiar with. And it's that backstory which is presupposed in this conversation. So what we have to do today is to dig back into, actually, one of my favorite books of the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, one of the most underrated books of the, um, the Old Testament, the worst entitled in English book of the Old Testament. It's not exactly a great sell, is it? Numbers, thanks, looking forward to this. Um, we have to dig back into that to figure out what's going on. And what we will find, I think, Lord willing, as we do so, we'll start to uncover something of the, the life story of these five remarkable young ladies. And you'll discover that the priorities and the motives that drove their lives as they approached adulthood, and particularly the motives and priorities that drove the decision about whom they were going to marry, have some very significant lessons for us. So we're going to jump back into the book of Numbers. You'll get paper cuts today from all the flipping backwards and forwards I'm going to make you do. And then we'll come back to Joshua and we'll draw some uh, implications and uh, points of application along the way. So first, if you wouldn't mind, please, if you've got your Bibles, jump back with me into the book of Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth book of the Bible, and chapter 27, where we meet these four remarkable ladies for the first time. I'm going to just talk through the first 11 verses to give you the first part of the backstory. There are actually two passages in Numbers we need to look at. Here's the first one. Chapter 27, verse 1. Well, no, before we look at that, just a reminder of where the book of Numbers is. The book of Numbers describes the long period of wandering through the desert um, from Egypt on the way to the land of Canaan after the giving of the law and the construction of the tabernacle and the installation of the priesthood and sacrifices. So giving of the law and uh, construction of the tabernacle in Exodus, uh, priesthood and sacrifices in Leviticus, and then they've got about 38 years left to wander through the wilderness. Uh, Numbers tells that story, and by the time we get to chapter 27, they've basically had 38 years 
They're basically at the end of their journey. You know that because of chapter 26, verse 63. These are those listed by Moses and Eliezer the priest, same Eliezer, remember him, uh, who uh, listed the people in the, of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. And so you know where they are. They're literally across the river from where they, the book of Joshua starts. So it's right near the end of that long journey. So chapter 27, verse 1. What happens next? Well, these ladies show up. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh. You know he's the same guy, same genealogy as in Joshua. From the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were, same names, Marla, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tilzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eliezer the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation. They've clearly got something important to say at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, and here's the issue that they've got to deal with, our father died in the wilderness. He wasn't among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. He died for his own sin. So he died not because he was particularly rebellious. He's just an ordinary Israelite who died in the wilderness, like almost all that generation. And he had no sons. Uh-oh. And they can see trouble coming. And they highlight the trouble they can see coming. Verse 4, why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. You can see the issue, right? They know from back in the book of Deuteronomy that the inheritance is going to pass from father to son. They also know that where they're going is the promised land when the land, which is the blessing from God, we'll come to that in a few minutes, will be given to the people in the tribes and shared out among them. But hold on, our father hasn't got any sons, so what's going to happen? And they insist, let it come to us. Let it not go to any of our other male relatives, as the pre-existing rules of allocation of inheritances would have stipulated. They said, look, if we, we haven't got any brothers. So, what's going to happen? Are we going to be, like, destitute? Please, give us an inheritance. In verse 5, Moses brought their case before the Lord. And you know that Moses doesn't bring all the cases before the Lord. Some of them get dealt with by the, all the other chiefs that Jethro said. You've got to appoint other people, don't you? You can't take care of anything apart from the really big issues. But this is a big issue. Moses brought their case before the Lord. And I love this verse. The Lord said to Moses, verse 7, the daughters of Zelophehad had a right. Wow, that's interesting. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. It does not matter that they are ladies. They must inherit as well. And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, you generalize this specific thing, this specific scenario that the daughters of Zelophehad's uh, experience has brought to attention, because there might be other ladies who are in a similar position. So now you've got to speak to all the people of Israel and revise the Torah, or add to the Torah in this way. Quote, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And only if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his father, father's brothers. So it does go to somebody in the tribe, but don't miss the ladies out. Don't miss out the daughters. And then verse 10, if he's no brothers, then give it to his father's brothers. If father's got no brothers, then give it to somebody. But uh, it shall be a statute and a rule for the people of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses, the ladies must receive their inheritance. This is permanent. It's binding. The ladies never miss out just because dad tragically died and they've got no brothers to inherit to look after them. Now, let's just think about some of the background that is presupposed here and some of the 
implications we might draw out of it. First up, um, obviously, in the land of Israel, this reflects the fact that men were required to take responsibility for women in their family. In ordinary circumstances, husbands are called to take care of their wives. Fathers are called to take care of their children. Actually, brothers, in various ways, are responsible for caring for their sisters and their mothers. And you see echoes of this in the New Testament, like providing for your relatives. If you don't do that, you're worse than an unbeliever. Illustration of this, of course, is Boaz in the book of Ruth, who is presented as the archetypal godly man in a nation of ungodly men. The only godly men you know of in the book of Judges, by the time you get after the book of Judges to the book of Ruth, are Boaz and the guys who work for him. Everybody else, goodness gracious, you don't want to hang out with them, but he cares for Ruth and for Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, all in different ways. He's wise, he's gracious, he's sacrificial, he's courageous, he's principled, he's generous. That's what a man's supposed to be. Boaz is like this picture of Jesus, actually. He's called the Redeemer. Come on. He's showing you men what kind of a man you ought to be, caring for your wives, caring for your husbands, and so on. So, yes, Israel is a patriarchal community, suck it up. <laughs> it's like, it just is. In this specific nuanced sense, it's not a patriarchal community in whatever sense some fool tweets about. It is a patriarchal community in this sense that men are responsible for the well-being and the flourishing and the nurture of the women and the children to whom they are related and they are given, therefore, the authority to make decisions in the context of their family and so on to bring about that flourishing because um, responsibility and authority go together. It's interesting. Um, I, my allusion uh, to what some fool might tweet about, I'm afraid what, what's actually happened in recent years, tragically among some conservative Christian movements, is that people have become so enraged by the progressivism and feminism of large parts of the church that, well, pendulums have swung and pendulums swing like pendulums do, don't they? So, um, well, if they're anti-patriarchy, we must be pro-patriarchy, and that no biblical content is given to what that means, with the result that tragically in some circumstances it's articulated in a kind of domineering and insensitive and frankly unbiblical and ungodly way. We don't want to fall off this bridge on either side because you, know, you drown whichever way you go. So that's the first thing. Second, that responsibility that goes along with the authority to make those decisions is connected for men with possession of the land. So how on earth are you going to provide? God, God, is, God is making you, gentlemen, responsible to provide for your families, giving you the authority to make certain decisions in relation to your family life and so on. In order that you can fulfill that obligation, the land goes to you. That's why, one of the reasons why, the men were to inherit. It's like, God isn't going to give you a job to do and then not give you the means to, to accomplish that. So that's why the men would inherit the land, Deuteronomy 21.16. Now, notice, please, it's not that according to the law of Israel, women don't get anything. No. According to the law of Israel, the women get what their husbands, fathers, brothers provide for them. It actually secures the inheritance of the women and doesn't vitiate it. Because it turns out, shock, horror, that men and women need each other. And particularly, um, uh, women who are, let's say, having babies and raising a family aren't always in the best shape to go into the fields and start cutting grain and wheat and so on. 
women tend to discover that they flourish best when there's a man to look after them and help them to raise the family which they feel uh, called to do. This actually clicks with other important themes in Scripture and elsewhere. Um, Men and women have, according to Scripture, have unmistakably distinct callings. The, um, The paradigmatic picture of masculinity and femininity. Think of Adam and Eve. Um, Adam is a farmer of some sort. What's Eve? Well, her name means life. She's the one who brings forth life. And you actually see the distinct callings of Adam and Eve echoed in what God says to them after the fall. And so what happens is God curses them for their sin, and, and Adam is cursed in relation to his distinct calling. A curse shall be the ground because of you. Um, it will be, it'll bring forth thorns and thistles. Your work is going to be harder. So how is Eve cursed? Well, pain in childbearing. Why is that? Because just in the biological reality that we're all familiar with reflects the way we're made as men and women having distinct roles in relation to family life. Um, and it's interesting, I mean, however much you try to push back, against, not you, however much our society tries to push back against this, you're, you're hit with this unmistakable biological kind of bricks stacked up along the railroad track if you try and take the wrong turning, aren't you? If you want an illustration of this, by the way, um, ladies, try arm wrestling one of your sons. I mean, sons, go, go easy, okay? You don't have any broken arms or anything. But it's just... It's just really interesting that the, the, the biological realities are unmistakably there, and the Bible is not remotely embarrassed about sticking up two fingers at our stupid contemporary progressive culture and just saying it like it is. Like, it just is true that women feel psychologically drawn to children, to the nurture of children, in ways that men don't. Just, if you, if you haven't spotted that, please don't take my word for it. Just wait, or just look more carefully. Um, the, the theological and the biological and the psychological just merge into one um, seamless garment, where, and it's only 20th and 21st century people who've been dumb enough to try and undercut it. And it's really remarkable, in all these places where the social experiments have been carried out, like in Sweden, you've heard about this research, that, to try and encourage, quote-unquote, incentivize women to embrace more traditionally masculine callings. You can't shift the statistics. Because it turns out that ladies just discover by their mid-twenties and thirties that if they aren't married and haven't got children, they'd really like to be married and have children. It's just like, well, you'd almost have thought that God knew what he was talking about, wouldn't you? Uh, turns out he does. Um, quick aside, a gentleman one of the things this means, of course, is that you've actually got to provide. You actually have to place yourself in a position where you, to speak in uh, late Bronze Age Israelite terms, you can farm the land. The land is going to be given to you. Uh, If it doesn't produce fruit, it's not her fault. The task of growing up into a man is partly, in fact, in very large part, the task of growing up into a man who is able to provide. And we're in a a more advanced, technological, post-industrial culture now. It means you need to be able to get a job, gentlemen. Like, 
when you're having conversations about what subjects you like most at school or what you might want to study at college, please, would somebody mention that? <laughs> there are lots of interesting things you might like to study. Feed into the discussion about how to prepare for adult life something about the fact that at some stage you're going to need to bring a paycheck home. Otherwise, you won't be equipped to be a Christian husband. We'll talk about that another time. Um, of course, in ancient Israel, and this is a, a, a further point, the land has additional significance. So obviously it's the place from which practical provision is made. Land is a little bit like your job and your training for it. But it's also more than that. Um, the land in Israel was the physical and geographical space in which the people of God enjoyed the blessing of their inheritance from the Lord. Just think of it for a second. Think about how, this is a huge difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's the failure to realize this that gets people into all kinds of trouble from dispensational eschatology to um, un misunderstanding the Jubilee laws. Like the, the, the land in Israel, your share in the land was your window on God's blessings to his people. If you didn't have land, if you didn't have a place, a physical geographical place within the community of the people of Israel, you had no access to the blessings of God that flowed through the temple. You had no access to the blessings of God that came through living in a community that was shaped by Torah, by the law of God, by the word of God. You had no access to um, the uh, community life and the provision of welfare and a just legal system and everything else. All of the blessings of God that came to you in this world came to you because you were in the land of Israel. So the land has this kind of significance and the crucial point that we're getting to with the book of Joshua is everybody needs to share in it. We need to structure the allocation of the land so that nobody misses out. Every tribe, every clan, every family, every individual must somehow have access to this land. It's why you can't move straight from land and family in the old covenant to land and family in the new covenant in every respect. There are some analogies, obviously, in, in the structure of God's covenants with his people and their children. Luke chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, and so on. But when you get to the land of Israel specifically, there are radical discontinuities because the land no longer has that significance, which it had back in ancient Israel. The way that you get your inheritance, the way you enjoy God's kindness is chapter 27, verse 7. They're right. You, you've got to give them a share in the inheritance among their father's brothers. Otherwise, they will miss out on knowing the Lord. So in summary then, Numbers 27 is part of this background to Joshua, and it preserves three things. First, the physical and material well-being of women. If you're not going to marry, or you're not married, you've got no brother, you've got no father to look after you, what, I don't know, you'll have land, so you can, it'll be hard work, but you can at least provide for yourself. Second, um, the integrity of the individual tribal inheritances. It means that the, the, the land doesn't just get kind of sold off to the highest bidder. And then thirdly, um, the blessing from the Lord that comes from being a participant in the land of Israel. If your father's died, you've got no brothers, you've got no husbands, you're still provided for as a woman within the community of the people of God. Now, let me just think about this for a second. Um, imagine you're 
late teens, early 20s, 30s, you're contemplating marriage. Let me ask you a question. If you don't ever marry, will you still receive your inheritance? Or, ask the question another way, if you don't ever marry, do you still have a precious and valuable place within the community of the people of God? If, if you don't ever marry, will God still give you precious and valuable things to do and relationships to have and a, a place in the church and a place in his purposes? Will God still work through you for the good of others if you don't ever get married? You, you're allowed to phone a friend, phone Noah or Hogler and ask them. <laughs> like, obviously, if God was going to ensure that single women would be provided for, have a place among his people under the old covenants. We're not going to get to the new covenant with Jesus and he says, right now, it's going to be, it's going to be great for everybody apart from you, are we? You will have a place, a valuable, a precious place in the community of the people of God if you never get married. Now, why do I need to emphasize this? The reason is because we are in the habit of rightly emphasizing the preciousness, the value, the dignity, the joy, the significance of marriage. I did it at the beginning of this sermon. I don't know whether you noticed that. And sometimes we create, therefore, a kind of pressure, an unhelpful pressure on women because they they're so excited about this wonderful God-given future that they hope they will have being married that they think their life hasn't really started until they get there. And the Lord reassures Noah and Marla and Hogler and their sisters, your, your life begins now. It is a profound mistake to think of singleness as a woman, as a kind of waiting period. Please don't do that. I, I know why you do it, because the, perhaps one of the things you're most excited about the possibility of is marriage in the future. But please don't think of it as a waiting period, because what that'll do is it'll orient you towards waiting. Think of it as a period of, well, I'm living and serving and enjoying the blessings of God as a single woman. That's what it is. And of course, of course, if you want to get married, and of course, I suspect most, perhaps almost all single women do, of course, that would be wonderful, but, but don't imagine that your life is somehow on sort of spiritual pause until you get there. I'd love for everybody to find the perfect husband and perfect wife. I really would. But just deal with statistics with me for a second. How many years could you waste by just imagining, well, I just, I'll wait for Superman, Prince Charming... <laughs> Actually, I've got to say, it's profoundly unattractive. We might as well say it honestly. It isn't particularly appealing to a man to, to observe a woman who's really not doing anything. And it's wonderful to see all you young ladies, you're studying hard or you're working in your job or you're training for a job. That's wonderful. I want you to encourage you to keep doing that because that's the sort of thing which is part of what, if the Lord has a husband in mind for you, will attract him to you. Like, wow, she's amazing. She's doing all these things that she does. And what we don't ever want to get is to the point where you're so desperate because I, I just need to get married, otherwise my life isn't worth anything, that you'll just marry any loser who shows up. There is no woman anywhere in the world who needs a husband so badly she can afford to marry a bad one. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. Okay. 
So, we preserve the inheritances of the women. Great, but, uh-oh, now we've got a problem. So the, the daughters of Zelophehad have their own inheritance, okay? So what if they do marry? What happens to the land then? Now, it's fairly straightforward. Obviously, it's their inheritance. They take it with them. It might make them quite desirable, really, um, probably to the wrong kind of men, truth be told, uh, who are just in it for what they could get out of it. But in the end, if they were to marry, their inheritance, which they've received, as though they were men, would be transferred to their husbands. So you can imagine, this is the kind of thing that would happen during the wilderness journeys. The tribes have different camps, but they're on a long journey. They've got those periods of walking a long way and you know, you've got mum and five daughters carrying all this stuff, and some strapping young chap is going to come along. No, do you mind if I help you with that? <laughs> so, not at all. <laughs> Ooh, who's he? Hello. Ask his name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the, the months and the years roll past, and it's like, hey, would you want to come over for... Would your, would your mother and your sisters and you like to come over for dinner? We're having manna. And, <laughs> and, Got some quail, if you want. You know, I, I know you like it. We've been eating it for 25 years. It's, uh, it's wonderful. And everything's going well. What could possibly go wrong? Well, the answer depends on which tribe the gentleman is from. The gentleman is from the tribe of Manasseh. Well, no problem. But what if it's a strapping young Judahite? Or a strapping, thoughtful, intelligent, handsome, suntanned Asherite or something? What's going to happen is that the tribal inheritances are going to start getting broken up. If what we do is we say, okay, any lady who doesn't have a father, because he's died, doesn't have brothers, retains the inheritance, and they marry outside their tribe, what's going to happen? All the tribal inheritances are going to get fragmented, broken up, lost, muddled, confused. And that's a problem. So really what we're trying to do, we want to try and do three things. We want people to have their individual inheritance. We actually want the tribes to retain their inheritance as well. And we want people to be able to choose who they get married to. And the problem is you can't do all three. You, there is no way of cutting it that allows you to do all three. You could um, relinquish the tribal inheritance thing. You say, oh, it doesn't matter. All the people of Israel, they all get jumbled up. That's like, hmm. But it's interesting that that's not what Scripture does. You could say, well, stuff your individual inheritance, just marry who you want and forget about blessings from the Lord. But scripture doesn't do that either. Astonishingly, of these three priorities, individual inheritance, tribal integrity, and choose who you marry, Scripture compromises the third. And it does so in Numbers 36. Turn over half a dozen pages and I'll show you. Because this is precisely the situation that arises in roughly the same time. It's probably a uh, days or weeks, maybe months later, people of Israel are still waiting to cross over into the promised land. Chapter 36, verse 1, the heads of the fathers' houses of the clan of the people of Gilead, the son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of the people of Joseph came. Here they come again. They came near to Moses before the chiefs and the heads of the fathers' houses and the people of Israel. And it's one of those things like where the pastor's like, oh, really, you again? <laughs> we never think that, by the way. But you can imagine Moses thinking, look, last time um, I had to go to the Lord and he said, yeah, they're right, you're wrong. So what's going to happen this time? They said, look, the Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for inheritance by lot to the people of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. But if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the people of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. 
So it will be taken away from the lot of our inheritance. And when the Jubilee comes, all the land will go to a different tribe, verse 4. That's the problem. If we let this carry on, Moses, if, if Noah and Hogler and Milcar go marry anybody, and this starts happening all over the place because you went and made it a general rule for every, all the tribes, the tribal inheritances will become fragmented. What are we going to do? Well, verse 5. Moses commanded the people. Here's the solution. Quote, the tribe of the people of Joseph is right. See the echo of chapter 27? Verse 6. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whom they think best, only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the, tribe of the, inherit- of the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. You see what they do? Moses finds a way of keeping people's individual inheritances. You are not going to miss out. And keeping the integrity of the different tribes, which is so important in the book of Joshua, hence all the land allocations. And giving people a more restricted choice about who they should marry. Jeepers. Whoever heard of such an outrageous thing that my freedom of choice about who I should marry should be constrained by concerns about what's best for my spiritual inheritance? Oh, yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe my hormones, maybe my freedom of choice, maybe my whims, maybe who I happen to fall in love with, maybe who's got the fastest car and the biggest biceps is less important than arranging marriage in such a way that it preserves my God-given inheritance. Can you see? Now, the land piece, like I said, that's not the issue that we look back at this and think, oh, yeah, but now we must make sure we... St-. No, 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 it's not about land. It's about preserving the inheritance that the Lord has given you. And that's the background that's picked up in Joshua chapter 16. Just turn now with me to Joshua 16. That, that wasn't the introduction, by the way, because that was most of the sermon. I've got a couple more things to say, and then we're done. Joshua 16, well, ch- chapter 17, really, picks up this background. Verse 3. Zelophehad, the son of Hepher, son of Gilead, Machir, Manasseh, had no sons, only daughters. These are their names. And we keep getting told their names, like they're really important, like we should really pay attention to them or something. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirzah. And they approached Eliezer and Joshua and the leaders with this astonishing boldness. You notice that? But they didn't send their husbands. It, it turns out at the end of Numbers 36, they're married at the end of the book of Numbers. But they didn't send their husbands. They themselves went. It's quite interesting. They approached Eliezer the priest and said, the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among, along with our brothers. So, look, we, we've done what we were told we needed to do. We've married within our clan, within our tribe. We've done what you commanded us at the end of Numbers 36. That, now, Jesus, sorry, Joshua, give me what you said you'd promised. It's a remarkable picture of courage and boldness and uh, approaching the Lord's spokesman in prayer to ask what he's promised to give you. One commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, says, numerous Christians lack the boldness, assurance, and confidence to lay hold of God's provisions. God has provided a throne of grace. Let us draw near to it so that we may find grace from him. Let 
Noah and Mala and Milka and Hogla and Tirzah lead you to the blessings that God has promised you, like they do with this boldness. And as women who laid aside other concerns, what they wanted is to marry a man who would lead me to retain my inheritance. That's the most important thing. Verse 5. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. It's interesting, because you've got six brothers, so you're thinking, well, maybe the brother whose descendants have got no sons, the daughters will share that. But actually what happens is that that, you get five more, one of them taken away, five more added, and the, the portions get divided into ten. So these ladies get an inheritance as large as their great-uncle's inheritance. It's like your boldness... Noah, your courage, your principle, ladies, brought you to the point where you have this overflowing richness of your heritage. Notice, by the way, we need to just say something very briefly about this before we conclude. Um, Notice what this is not. The conclusion this is not leading us towards is you need to marry somebody within your tribe. I'm afraid um, the... In recent years, we have seen a resurgence of a small, vocal, extremely ignorant movement within conservative Christianity called kinism, which insists that you should only marry your kin, and what they really mean is your skin color. They call it race. I object to the term race applied to skin tone. It never means that anywhere in scripture. It's a distortion of biblical thinking to refer to race in that way. I've spoken about that before. But the, the this is a kind of exegesis that sometimes is adduced to support that. Well, these ladies married within their clan, therefore what really you need to do is etc. Like, it's quite hard to work out where to begin with a critique of exegesis that bad. I get to read a lot of bad exegesis, by the way. It's one of the things I have to do for a living. But it's rare that you find anything quite that shocking. But notice that there's a very simple answer to this. In the community of pe- the people of Israel, the integrity of the community and the inheritance of individual families and clans was tied to the possession of a particular portion of land. Because that's not true, it's not the which clan are you in that matters. What matters is this person is going to lead you towards Jesus. Ladies, you're looking around at the world, looking around at all these gentlemen, wondering whether anybody... Oh, I wonder... He's nice. I'm not interested whether he's nice. I want to know whether he's going to enrich your experience of the grace of Christ. Whether he's going to lead you in such a way that you will preserve and enjoy and be blessed in the heritage the Lord has given you. The whole of this backstory to these three or four verses here is designed to remind us of that. It is the most significant decision you will ever make having decided to follow Christ. Find a man who you think, yeah, if I follow this man, if I get in his truck, so to speak, back to our illustration, he will lead me towards Jesus. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for the directness, the insights, the relevance and the sharp edges of your word, the Bible. 
Teach us not to blunt them, but to feel them and to walk in step with them, that we may be blessed by your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as we draw closer to him. And we pray particularly for the young ladies here, uh, that you would lead them in such a way that they make wise choices about whom they marry and are blessed in their heritage as a result. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.